0: Alright, well today we are going to return to our study of the book of 1 Samuel that we have been calling all year long, The Story of the King. And as I've said several times, but maybe not for a while, when we talk about the king here at Rio, as in the story of the king, we're not talking about King Saul, even though as we jump back into this narrative, Saul is still the king Of Israel, and we're also not talking about David, even though he's the God-ordained, God-anointed, next king of Israel at this part of the story, though he's still running for his life. He and his band of 600 not-so-merry men are fleeing constantly at this point in the narrative from Saul, but rather, as Matt said at the beginning, when we talk about the king here at Rio, we're, we're talking about King Jesus. And it's the things of Christ that we're teasing out of these stories that happen to involve Saul and happen to involve David, but also, I hope, happen to involve us as we tease these lessons out about Jesus and about me and about you and about what it means to have a king and about what it means to follow a king. And so, two weeks ago, before Father's Day, when we last looked at this story, here's what we learned about King Jesus. We learned that when it comes to discerning the will of King Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you want me to do next? Our circumstances, and please listen to how I define this, meaning the way things look to us through the lenses of our passions at a given moment in time, are a very poor God. And as I thought about that, even this morning, I thought to myself, you know, that's the way we look at everything necessarily. If we're angry, we look at everything through the lenses of the passions of our anger. If we're lustful, we look at everything through the passions of our lust. If we're selfish, it's selfishness. If we're Depressed, it's that. We view life through a certain pair of lenses. Okay, well, when it comes to discerning what Jesus would have you to do, your circumstances, the way you view things at a given moment in time in your history, in your life, through the lenses of your passions generally speaking, is a very poor guide. And so we learned as well two weeks ago that the number one first question that we must always ask when seeking to determine the will of Christ for us is what does God's Word say? But here's the problem, and we'll see this today. In our passion, sometimes we don't want to know what His Word says. Or sometimes we know what His Word says, and we choose to ignore it. Or sometimes we know what his word says and we can't ignore it. So we open up that Bible with those lenses of our passions on and we try to find a way to make it say something different. Passions are kind of the topic for today. And man, are they powerful. But nevertheless, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Okay, question number one, what does God's word say? If that answers it, you're done. You've got your answer. But if it doesn't... Then you go to question number two. We saw this two weeks ago as well. And what is that? It's what does my heart say? Now, why is that even relevant? Because the Bible comes to us and says things to us about our hearts. Like, for example, Psalm 37 verse four, where the Lord God comes to us through David, incidentally, and he says, delight yourself in the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, make Christ your passion. Make him your pursuit. Make his heart and his mind and his nature and his character the thing that you thirst for and and hunger for and long for and chase after more than anything else in life. Okay, when you do that, what will God then do? God will then give you the desires of your heart, which does not mean that if you desire a Ferrari, he'll give that to you. I've said that many times in the past. What that means is that as your mind becomes more like his mind, as your heart becomes more like his heart, as your nature and character become more like the nature and character of Jesus himself, guess what else will become more like his? Your desires... As you're conformed to Him, His image, He will take His desires and He will begin to implant them into your heart. And before long, you will begin to desire for you what He desires for you. And many of you, just being here right now, okay, that is an answer to that. I mean, that is the fulfillment of that reality. There are a lot of people here today who come now regularly who would never have foreseen that they would ever regularly attend a church, but now you desire to. It's the highlight of your week. It's a want to, it's a get to, it's not a have to. God's implanting his desires into your heart. But again, what's the problem with our passions and our hearts? Our passions overrun our hearts. It's like a tidal wave, a tsunami on the beach. And then once the waters recede, we regret what we've done in our passions because our hearts knew them to be wrong. So that brings us to this week and to question number three. Question number three is, what does wise counsel say? And here's the problem. Here's why this is so important. I have a problem and you have a problem. And I know that I don't know everybody here, so maybe you're thinking, well, this is great. He's never even shaken my hand and now he's going to tell me what my problem is. And, um, and I am, actually, uh, remarkably. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you the problem of every other person on the planet, too, so just so you don't feel unique. Every person who has ever lived except for Jesus has this problem. The problem with every human being, it is the human condition, it is that our passions are the strongest part of us. That is why so many times in life, every single one of us has done things that we knew to be stupid. Stronger than our minds. Our passions are stronger than our intellect, and they override them. Stronger than our hearts, too, which explains why we've also done numerous things that, you know what, we need to be wrong. Our passions are the strongest part of us, which makes wise counsel very very important. It means that every single one of us needs to have people in our lives that actually know what's happening in our lives, that we strategically, purposefully, intentionally, and in light of this, in wisdom, give access to our lives who love us enough and are strong enough to step into the fits of passion that every single one of us are given to and find a kind and humble and ironic way of saying, hey, um, you know what, this is really stupid. This is stupid what you're about to do. What you're doing, not so smart. And incidentally, when the wave of your passion subsides and recedes back into the waters, you're going to regret this because in your own heart you know this is wrong. Good grief, if we just change shoes, what would you be telling me to do? That is a person to be treasured. That is a relationship to be cultivated. And I need that in my life, and you need that in your life. And David, as we'll see today, needed that in his life. My goodness, if David needed it, how much more do I need it? So we pick up our study today, 1 Samuel 25, in the second part of verse 1, where we read that then, meaning right after everything that happened in chapter 24, and what happened in chapter 24, David and his men, if you'll recall, were penned into the back of this massive dark cave with a running fountain in the back that muted all the sounds. And Saul and his 3,000 men who vastly outnumbered them came into that cavern, and they've got them trapped. They don't even know they have them trapped, but they have them trapped. And then Saul comes in. He wanders in all alone to go to the bathroom. We don't need to rehearse that part. We remember it very vividly, probably. And it's like God has delivered up Saul on a silver platter, has he not? David kill him. But he doesn't kill him. Why? What does God's Word say? God's Word says that Saul is the Lord's anointed. As the Lord's anointed, God's Word says that Saul is the property of God. I cannot destroy the property of God It's for God to do, and God is more than capable of doing it. Incidentally, God's Word says that too. And even when he sneaks up and he cuts off nothing more than a little corner of the hem of his robe, David's heart afflicts him. He realizes, I have done something wrong. Can you imagine what his heart would have done if he had slit his throat? So David follows the word of God. He asks the right questions. He follows his own heart even, and then he persuades all of his men, which had to be difficult, (laughs) not to kill Saul for themselves. Okay, well then right after that, we read that David rose... And he went down to the wilderness of Paran. So what's with the details? Why wilderness? Why does that matter? Because a wilderness is a place of deprivation. It's a place where there is very little water and thus very little food. And David has, at this point in time, at least 600 men to feed three times a day. That's a big burden. And it sets up what we read next. It says, and there was a man in Maon, which is a wilderness right next to the wilderness of Paran, so they're all in the same neighborhood is the idea, whose business was in Carmel, which is not Mount Carmel in the north, but a little town in southern Judah right by Maon. And now listen to the way this narrator describes this guy, because he describes him very carefully. He describes him as being like a king. He describes him as being like Saul, and he describes him as being like Saul in some way, Because what he wants you to do is to begin to compare how David treated Saul in chapter 24, where he let him go, and what David will now do with this guy. Same kind of person in both cases. Very different reaction. So we read that there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel... And we read now that the man was very rich, and then we're given an example of his great wealth. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. This man is being described as being like a king. He is wealthy like a king. He's clearly the wealthiest guy in the whole area for sure. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, back then, sheep shearing was a time of great feasting. So the picture is of this king-like, Saul-like man who is massively wealthy and who is shearing his sheep, which is a time when he would realize the wealth of having all of those sheep and all of those goats. And he's throwing a royal banquet, a royal feast, and it was traditionally a time of year too when those kinds of people would be very, very generous with all of the people beneath them who had helped him gain and realize on that day at this feast the great wealth that he was realizing. It's Christmas, and you're giving out bonuses. That's the idea. And what you need to remember in this story or realize coming into it is that David and his 600 men, the not-so-merry men, they ought to be included in the Christmas bonus program. Because what they've been doing is not only have they refrained from taking sheep and goats from this man to eat, and again, they're in the wilderness, they're hungry, there's 600 of them, at least but they have actively guarded this man's wealth from people who would have stolen, from animals that would have taken. They have a share, if you will, in this great banquet and in this great feast, and David knows this. So the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He's shearing his sheep in Carmel. He's having his royal banquet. It's a time of great generosity, and now we read something about the man. The man's name was Nabal, and the word Nabal means literally foolish. So what the narrator is going to do in this story is he's going to give us a picture of a foolish man, but he's going to give us a picture of a very wise woman, too, For we then read, and the name of his wife was Abigail, which incidentally means my father delighted. Isn't that beautiful? What a blessing on a daughter that would be. My father delighted, but now here's her description. And the woman, Abigail, unlike her husband, was discerning. He was foolish and senseless. She was discerning. And she was beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved to pictures. He was a Calebite, so that's the family he belongs to. And now David heard in the wilderness where he had very little food and 600 guys to feed that this foolish king-like, Saul-like man named Nabal was shearing his sheep. He's hosting his royal banquet. It's a time of generosity. And so David sent 10 young men. He doesn't send one young man or two or three or five or nine He sends ten. That's a statement of the kind of expectation that David has in terms of the kind of generosity that he's expecting to get from this guy. David has placed a value on the services that he has rendered to this man who is realizing, at least in part, the value of those great services that David and his men have provided to him all of this time. And the value is, okay, look, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys is clearly not going to be enough to bring back this gift. And you better believe that David has budgeted this gift into his budget. Into his expectations, into how in the world am I going to keep all of these guys fed. David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. So let me give to you what I want you to say to him. And it's beautiful. He says, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers and that your shepherds have been with us. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, he says, and we did them no harm and they missed nothing. There it is. All the time that they were in Carmel, meaning not only did we not take from you, we protected what you had. In fact, he says, ask your young men about this. They'll verify, he's saying, what I'm telling you. Therefore, let my ten young men... Find favor in your eyes because I have 600 hungry and expectant guys to feed and because we come on a feast day, which is a day of generosity. So please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your what? To your son, David. Now, why is that important? Because in the previous story, what did David call Saul? He said, my father. The narrator is comparing these two. And he's saying, now watch how differently David treats these guys. And so when David's young men came to Nabal, they said, all of this to Nabal or really to Nabal's servants who then relayed the story to Nabal and probably, by the way, confirmed the story to Nabal. And they did that in the name of David, and then they waited for Nabal's response. And Nabal answered David's servants, and here's the answer. Who is David? Who is the son, not of Nabal, but of Jesse? He's completely disassociating himself from David. And then he insults him. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. A reference to Saul, he's saying, I side with the bad guy. And then look at all the personal pronouns. Because when you use these kinds of pronouns with what you have, the narrator is saying, you look kind of more like Nabal than Abigail. It's the mark of foolishness. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat, which in that culture are the staples of life. So what he's seeking to deny to David and his men is the same thing, but in a different way, that Saul is seeking to deny to David and his men, the ability to live. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do no, not, nowhere. where. Nabal is a fool. And as you come to these stories and you're teasing out what's going on in these stories, that you might meditate on it, that you might learn from it. You look at the picture of this man who thinks that everything that he has, he's A, created, and B, belongs to him. And then you have to reckon with the fact that, biblically speaking, that's the picture of a fool. The Bible comes to us and says, You know what? Let me tell you what you are. You're not an owner, you're a steward. You didn't create it, you were given it. And even if you've worked hard for it, where did you get the life and the energy and the skill and the determination and the whatever else it took to create it? It's not yours. It's not yours. The Bible calls us to be generous and says the opposite of it is foolishness. And so we get the picture of that in Nabal. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from, well, you know what, I, I don't even know where. And so David's young men turned away, and they came back, and they told David all of this, and David said, you know what, guys, fortunately, we've just experienced this with Saul. And we've got to go through this hierarchy of questions. We've got to stop and say, all right, listen, before we just respond in this, in anger, we've got to say, wait a minute, what does God's Word say about this? And as I think through God's Word, I think to myself, you know, verses like, vengeance is mine, sayeth the Lord, you know, that comes to mind for me. Which, incidentally, is what we just did with Saul. We said, God, you're going to have to take care of him. What about this other Saul-like guy? We should do that, don't you think? And man, I mean, if we just go wipe this guy out, if we kill him and, you know, maybe a bunch of other people in his household, for example, I know that once this wave of passion dies, it recedes back into the ocean, if you will. I'm going to regret this for the rest of my life because, I mean, if my heart afflicted me when I just cut off a little bit of Saul's robe as opposed to his neck, can you imagine how I'm going to feel from this day forward if we go wipe this guy out? I understand you guys are upset. I recognize the expectations that have been, you know, not met here. I know that he punched us in the face, and we're going to turn him over to the Lord, and that's it. Okay, that's not what happens. What happens is that David caves. David snaps. And as a guy, I mean, like, I can totally understand that. Finally, I think all of the pressure of fleeing constantly, not just for days or weeks or months, but by this point, years, running for your life from one place of deprivation to the next place of deprivation to the next place of deprivation with an ever-increasing group of guys that you're responsible for, whose lives, together with yours, depend on every decision that you make and who you need to keep fed. Good grief, I don't want to be him. But it's bigger than that. The pressure of having your family living over in the land of Moab because they've had to flee and leave everything behind. Like, who's who's living in your house? I mean, who's taking all of your animals? Who's protecting everything that your family for generations have built up? I mean, there's so much involved here, and not just David's family, but, but the family of, of all of these guys. And then the pressure and the frustration, no doubt, of having some of these guys, particularly when they're hungry questioning David's judgment. Why didn't he kill Saul? Does he not have the nerve? What's the problem here? He could have ended all of our suffering, but now here we are again, and we just got stiffed by this guy. What's for dinner? Oh, we don't have an answer for that one. So it's time to go hunting, boys. David says, that's it, I've had it. It says in verse 13, and David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And don't you know, they were excited to do it. Finally, justice. And every man strapped on his sword. They didn't argue. They didn't try to talk him out of it. They went, yes, right on. And David also strapped on his sword. And notice the number, it all matters, for about 400 men... Went up with David, while 200 remained with the baggage, stayed behind to guard the camp. But one of the young men told Abigail, Aha, the woman of wisdom, Nabal the fool's wife Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when they were in the fields or when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall of protection, is the idea, to us both night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house and notice this, because it's the picture of the fool, and he is such a worthless man that what one cannot speak to him. What are they saying about this guy, whose name means foolish? He doesn't listen to anybody. He doesn't take wise counsel. He's just one of those people who makes up his mind, and then that's it. There's no talking to him. There's no discussing that with him. Why even bother? You're not going to get anywhere. These are unmasking stories. These are things and stories and pictures that come to us and go, hey man, um, you know, maybe you're not like that on every issue, or maybe you are. But what about this topic? You don't want to hear from anybody on that, do you? Let's not discuss this. What does Abigail do? She looks at it, she sizes it up, and she says, you know, I'm not really sure that I should get involved in this. I mean... You know, I'm not entirely sure that this is any of my business. I I mean, you've already said my husband's not at all interested in my opinion and all of my experiences with him pretty much back that up. I don't even know this David guy and clearly he's in a fit of rage. So like, you know, of what good am I going to be? I mean, if I insert myself into this, this is just going to be a problem and everybody's going to go, why are you doing this? And shouldn't you just leave well enough alone and let these guys work it out? And it's not what she does, but it is oftentimes what we do. God will give us, from time to time, insight into someone else's life. And here, sometimes, is what we will see. We will recognize that they don't recognize that, in fact, they're standing on a railroad track and a train's coming. And because they're wearing these lenses of passion and, frankly, looking in the wrong direction, they don't see what we can clearly see. And what we can clearly see from, like, ten miles out is that the train is coming. And we're thinking, hey, bud, you know, that whistle, that's not a bird, That's a train. And what do we do? More often than not, we talk about it not with them, but with somebody else. Oh my goodness, can you believe they're doing this? This is so stupid. Good grief, can they not see that this is incredibly wrong? You know what? I just I'm not going to say anything because that might compromise our relationship. I just don't know that it's any of my business. It's not what Abigail does. Abigail, Abigail at great risk to herself, springs into action. And in doing this, she saves not just her foolish husband and whole household, she saves David. Because just like Esau, that's why the number 400 mattered. Go further back into the Old Testament, you see that story of Esau. Esau gets word that his brother Jacob and his family are coming. And he's been offended, has he not? So he gathers up 400 men and he rides to kill him. He's coming to kill Jacob. He's not coming to kiss him. He doesn't bring 400 men for that. What does Jacob do? Because Abigail does the same exact thing. He gathers up a huge and generous gift, far more than 10 guys needed for this. And he sends it on ahead to meet his brother before he sees him. And then Jacob goes out alone, puts his family behind him, And in essence says, okay, if somebody's going to get killed here, it's going to be me. Your problem is with me. Leave them out of it. And he appeases the wrath of Esau. What does Abigail do? She gathers up like a 20-guy-sized gift, and she sends it on ahead of her. And then she goes on ahead, and she comes to David as he's coming, having already received her gift. And she gets off of her donkey, and she puts her forehead to the ground before him. And she says, and I'm going to paraphrase, but within the context of all of this, it's, this, is the, this is the bottom line. She says, My husband is a fool. He's behaved badly. Let me take the blame for this. It's substitutionary. She's the Christ figure in the story. Let your wrath fall on me and spare him and spare our household. And then she brings wise counsel to David. She says, "David, what you're about to do is wrong. Not only does it violate God's word, and you know that's question number one, you just did it with Saul. That's what governed that situation. Why is this different? This man has harmed you far less than Saul. Vengeance is the Lord, belongs to him. And you need to give it to him. And not only that, if you do this, you will regret it for the rest of your life. If your heart afflicted you by cutting off a little bit of a robe, can you imagine how badly your heart will afflict you from here forward if you wipe out this whole man's household based on this offense? And in addition to that, a little practical matter, this is going to mark and stain your reputation and your ability to rule as king. Because everyone is going to see from this action that you are petty that you are capricious, that you are an overly angry, fly-off-the-handle guy as opposed to prudent, which is one of the marks of a leader. You are going to ruin your reputation. David, do with this man what you did with Saul and trust him to the Lord. And God will avenge you against him. So we have the picture of the fool, we have the picture of the wise woman, and we've got the picture of David. Will he listen or not? And he does, doesn't he? He listens, and then God avenges him against Nabal. It doesn't always happen this quick. But it's a pretty sweet tale if you really don't like Nabal. You remember the story, she comes back to the house, she lets him have his party, and then the next morning she tells him what happens. And from the description, it sounds like he has a stroke. It says the Lord struck him and he died ten days later. And what is David's commentary? How does he read that as he looks at it in the rearview mirror with the wave of his passion having receded back into the ocean? He says this in verse 39. It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of the fool. And who has kept back his servant, meaning me, David, from wrongdoing. The wise counsel saved him. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head, and David learned that the Lord will do that too for Saul, will he not? And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Man, that is a massive reversal between these two guys, isn't it? And she agreed. David gained for himself, not only a wonderful wife, but in in that wonderful wife, a very wise counselor, which is, in my experience, typically the way it works. So when it comes to discerning the will of King Jesus, the first question is, what does God's word say? But watch out for your passions, because they'll drive you to walk right past the Bible. In your fits of whatever... They'll drive you to somehow forget, and forgetfulness in the Bible is intentional. It's not, I forget where I put my keys. It is a moral failure. They'll cause you to forget what you know to be true, or to say, well, I can't ignore it, but maybe I can change it somehow. Somehow. So then if that doesn't work, second question, what does my heart say? Because when you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll implant them into your heart, and your heart will then become a wise and capable guide of what your king would have you to do, but it can also be overrun. Can it not? It can. So then question number three, what does wise counsel say? Because our problem, guys, is that our passions are the strongest parts of us, which is why we do things that we know to be dumb and that we know to be wrong. And what we need then are godly people. People who know the voice of the king to bring to us the voice of the king. People who are involved in our lives on purpose. With whom we have committed to transparency. And people who love us enough to tell us the truth, which is sometimes, hey man, um, that whistle, yeah, it's not a bird. That's That's a train. And how can I help you get off the tracks? So I want to close by asking you three things. Number one, if you had to stand up and you don't, so don't freak out, okay? But if you had to stand up right now and identify two people who fit that description, who are they? Because if you don't have an answer to that, then that's your charge. That's what you need to now go find. You need to go find two people godly who fit that description or who you can help make that fit that description, who you intentionally approach and invite to have a voice in your life because you'll find it's often the voice of Christ in your life. Secondly, are you willing to listen to wise counsel or are you one of the people who, and you've actually heard people say this to you, yeah, man, he just doesn't listen to anybody. Or she just, you know what, forget it. Don't even, don't even go there. It's not even, it's not even worth it. Just because you have to take the picture of Nabal seriously. Because it may be that the people who love you are trying to tell you that you're on the railroad tracks and it's the whistle of a train. Lastly, who do you need to bring wise counsel to because as you look into their lives they're standing on it in fact they're tied up on it (laughs) you know that unless you intervene okay it's going nowhere and maybe even other people agree with you on it oh man this is going to be bad you know here it comes the train's arriving in three minutes and who do you need to take that to to take the risk abigail took a risk she may have been met with the displeasure of david Well, you might be met with the displeasure of that other person too. And they may then actually ignore you and get run over by the train. But here's what they'll recognize later. They'll recognize there were like 50 people who saw the train coming and one came to tell them about it. And that one is the one who truly loved them. That one is the one who in the end proved a friend indeed. So one of the ways that our king speaks to us is through wise counselors. Go find some, right? Go listen to some, and go be some. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the wise counsel of your word. God, we thank you for the way that it is alive, that your spirit takes these stories and out of them again and again gives to us the voice of our king. And through them, makes it clear to us what it is that he would have us to do. Lord, I pray that you would give us now the faith then to do it. Not to be enabled, to listen and to ignore. Lord, but to be more like David, racing along in our passions in life and yet humble enough to receive counsel, to recognize the voice of the king, the true king, when we hear it. with the faith and to obey. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.